Hello, I'm Jeremy Lair, and welcome to this episode of The Money Movement. Uh, I'm here in Singapore for the Singapore FinTech Festival, and I'm really thrilled to be joined today by Coinbase founder, Brian Armstrong. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Appreciate yeah, it. this is awesome. Uh, we don't get to be together in person very often, and, yep. um, and being able to do it all the way around the world uh, here is kind of cool. I agree. We do almost all of our meetings over video, but this is like, I always joke with people, this is the highest resolution video call we're going to do for a while. Yeah, so. it is. It yeah. is. It's really good. Um, obviously, there's just like tons we can talk about and, and themes. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I actually want to start with just like a very high level theme, which is like kind of moving from the speculative value phase to the utility value phase of crypto. And I actually remember, um, I think it was, I don't know if it was after your Series B or one of your, after your fundraising, you like had like a, a, a document you published, which was, I, I think, kind of like, here are these different phases and where are the we? Secret master plan. The secret master plan. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where, where are in these phases? You don't necessarily have to reference that particular thing, but I think, like right now is a really interesting moment because like so much infrastructure has been built. There's just so much there. You know, stepping back ten years, right? Uh, I think as we look and say, "Wow, look how far this has come." It's amazing, but we're still like really early. And, and we, we have maybe a few hundred million people who are touching this. It's still a small part of the world. Obviously, we all believe it's going to be everyone in the world eventually. But what do you think are the most important things, most important problems to be solving for kind of moving to more utility value in crypto today? Mm. Yeah, well, you're right. So we always kind of thought about it as crypto going through these three phases of it would start off as primarily an investment use case. And then it would move to you know, different types of financial services, borrowing and lending and remittance and earning money and commerce. And then it would move to no, even non-financial service things like you know, Web3 and the, yeah. the decentralized apps. And we're seeing that now with decentralized identity and yeah. social and gaming and you know, all these DAOs, new types of things. Experiments and all these things, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the things that, that'll, that are the big unlocks to help that happen even faster, I mean, it's already happening today, as, as, as you mentioned. And we, we actually track some of that internally at Coinbase, like what percent of our active users are doing something other than trading? Mm-hmm. And it's now more than 50%, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just one thing that they're doing, it's like a bunch of little things, right? It's, they're using like their Coinbase card and Coinbase, are, you know, they're earning money with crypto, doing peer-to-peer payments, like yeah. commerce, right? So staking and yield and all these things have become bigger and bigger. So we're seeing that transition already happen. It's more than 50% of our active users. And I think the way we get it to be even bigger or the next big unlocks, I mean, one of them, it's got to be regulatory clarity, right? That's one I know you've worked super hard on all over the world. Um, And if we can, a lot of the institutional investors I talk to, for instance, they all say, you know, we've got 1% of our portfolio in crypto. And I say, what would it take to get it to 20 or 30? And they say, regulatory clarity, regulatory clarity. Yeah. It's, it's all, I mean, the whole ball game is regulatory yeah. clarity. And well, so, so we, we can come back to that theme, obviously. Yeah. It's a big theme, yeah. Yeah, and um, so that's a big one. And then the other one is, you know, scalability of the blockchains. Totally. Um, depends who you talk to. Some people feel like this, the blockchains are scalable now and we need the apps. And I, right. I like kind of feel DSL. like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it's like um, when the internet first got going, it had all yeah. this fiber optic infrastructure and... Anyway, I, I feel like getting another order of magnitude of scalability totally. in the blockchains would just unlock all yeah. these use cases. I, I use the example of, sorry to interrupt, no, it's like the, the example of like, we're going from dial-up to broadband. Yeah. And like, you know, yes, like these third generation chains that are kind of out there now, right, they have X thousand TPS, et cetera. But when you think about like Web3 and the kinds of apps and the kinds of things that people want to do, like 
we, we don't have the pipes, right? And I yeah. think broadband is an interesting analogy because it is about throughput, basically, and at the end of the day, and how many bits you can move. But this is sort of about kind of how much kind of shared state can exist on these compute platforms. And, yeah. and um, but uh, we're still like you know, like when broadband came, right? It was originally just. You know, DSL was like eh, not really. It was like five times faster than a dial-up modem, yeah. um, and then eventually, yeah, enough got there where almost any app could kind of happen over that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but sorry, that was like one infrastructure scaling. Yes, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. To me, those are the two big ones, and um, I mean, I don't know if I had to pick a third one. It's probably just the usability, right? Like right now, today with with Web three and all these use cases, the typical. It's actually amazing how much adoption Web3 has gotten, <laughs> given how difficult right, it is to use. Right. But a lot of times people will they'll buy crypto on an exchange, then they'll move it to a self-custodial wallet, which is often a Chrome extension. Right, right there you've lost you know, most of the, the world. The funnel, and you think about the funnel, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. most people in the world don't yeah. use Chrome extensions except nerds like <laughs> right, us. Right. And then you know, you've got to figure out how to Seed connect phrases. your wallet. <laughs> yes, you might, lose, you might lose the funds. Yeah. Um, there's all these, you know, oftentimes you have to like bridge your funds to yeah. another layer too. And so we've just got to make it way, way, way simpler. Right. So the usability, yeah. I think, you know, it's got to just be like, you want to buy that? You click a buy button and it all magically yeah. works yeah. <laughs> somehow. Like a lot, a, lot of, a lot of people often say like, you know, crypto reaches mainstream when people don't know they're using crypto, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I think, not ex- exactly sure what that means, but but clearly, like that user experience layer, I agree about that. It's 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 a uh, it's it's such a huge hurdle um, for people. And uh, you know, going back to like early examples of iterations on on the internet, right? I, my last company was digital media, and you know, like media was like browser plugins. It was like you wanted to stream a video, you had to go get either the Windows Media Player, or the Real Player, or the QuickTime Player, and it was like all these different codecs, and they're mm-hmm. constantly upgrading, and it's like. It was awful. Mm-hmm. It was like truly awful, but people were really excited about it, and there was actually a lot of streaming. But you know, you, you eventually you needed like you know, kind of either common standards that then all the clients could implement um, that then made that work. And we're not quite there, but maybe we'll get there if Apple and Google and people who control the client operating systems actually build some of the crypto primitives in, mm. into their OSs. Um, that could help. Yeah, um, that would help. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe we'll get there on that in the next, I don't know, few years. Yeah, I mean that'll be a very interesting question if crypto companies actually need to go build their own hardware, like phones and laptops and VR headsets, or if the current generation of of those companies will actually embrace it. I, I think they're all yeah. a little bit. Some, you know, there's there's people inside all these big companies that yeah. are thinking about crypto and are very pro crypto. Yeah. But sometimes the leadership is ambivalent, or it's just not their highest priority, and so you yeah. get kind of waffling and. It's, it'll be interesting to see if like a, a dedicated crypto phone can actually um, push that whole yeah. situation forward. Yeah, definitely. We're, see, we're seeing experiments like that. If you look at like what Apple is doing and Google and others, but like yeah, you know, they have their wallet and it has like identity and entitlements, and they're trying to kind of layer in these other things um, that are kind of kind of closed loop to their environment. Mm-hmm. And like you can see like NFTs as entitlement mechanisms and crypto primitives as mechanisms for identity and you know all, all of those could be standardized on an open infrastructure and mm-hmm. um, I, it's sort of like the the uh, pre-internet standards era um, you know that that is in some of these spaces but crypto is kind of finding its way and I, I I like to think once it's clearly 
you know, a whole set of use cases that go beyond um, in, in, say, if I'm an Apple product lead, like beyond, like, this is just about Bitcoin, or in people's minds, it's super simplistic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's actually, like, this is, this is actually important internet infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, one, one of the things I'm interested to hear your take on is, is um, like, over the medium to long term, this sort of shift from um, kind of entities that exist uh, in the in real life um, to kind of entities that exist on chain, and it's it's one of the things I'm most excited about in terms of like long term growth is the idea that labor and capital um, can can construct mechanisms to work together that are truly global, that are transparent uh, and you know auditable and kind of can exist entirely on chain. Mm-hmm. DAOs is sort of the word people use for a lot of these, but not all of these are going to be autonomous nor totally decentralized, but mm-hmm. let's just call them DAOs for now. Mm-hmm. But, but like on-chain entities in a sense. Um, and I know you guys have experimented a little bit with, with that in terms of stuff out in the ecosystem, but interested to hear your take on how significant you think that can be and how much of a growth driver that can be to the kind of crypto economy over the long run. Yeah, well, I like how you framed it as um, better organization of capital and labor. Um, You know, we're here in Singapore, which is, well, I'm I'm really passionate about this idea of economic freedom. And, you know, the mission of Coinbase is to increase economic freedom. And so Singapore, if you look at the the rankings of the world, is actually the number one um, highest economic freedom country in the world right now. If you you look at the 2022 rankings on Wikipedia, based on, you know, various organizations that rank these things. So um, that was kind of what made this place so prosperous was... Um, you know, property rights and, you know, rule of law and, you know, free trade and all these things that allowed capital and labor to come together in unison and just make better, high quality products at cheaper prices. And and it just, even with very few natural resources, they became this incredibly wealthy country. So in in a way, it's like crypto is trying to bring that prosperity story to more and more countries around the world. And I do think DAOs are a really big deal. They're they're a huge part of this puzzle. Yeah, Yeah. I love DAOs. I'm super bullish on it. I think... um, so it's a very broad term and, you know, people go through various ups and downs just like in any new innovation in crypto where, you know, DeFi will take off and then it'll have a winter or whatever. So DAOs have kind of go th- gone through some of these as well. You know, look, the bugs need to get worked out in the smart contracts. Um, I, it'd be nice if we had better tools around, you know, anybody could sort of go and create a DAO, yeah. um, you know, manage to do governance through voting and all this stuff yeah. should get super yeah, simple. Kind of functions of an organization and make yeah. that more like a SaaS product, but all executed safely on, yeah. on, on chain. Yeah. Even even like payroll and, and yeah. people. So there's another weird thing which I think people need to figure out with DAOs, and I, I we probably need to do our part on this too, but um, some DAOs I've seen actually they turn into like collectives, yeah. Um, which is almost like you know designed by committee or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think that's the right model. Right. You know, companies always are thinking about this too, right? And yeah. in, in theory, you have like flat hierarchy, divisions, PLs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And just I mean, generally, the standard model is like you have one CEO who can make the call and move forward, so you don't have just endless dead deadlock and yeah. debate and everything. But you know, maybe you have a board that creates governance over that, and yeah. like so. Anyway, I think people. The good news about DAOs is there's going to be like a, a lot of variance in different models that people experiment with. So it's not just DAOs are not just one thing. Yeah. Um, I do think there's some projects that have kind of default made the DAO sort of like 
um, this committee or, or commune thing, and that yeah. and that's I think that's probably not going to work it's if I had to guess. Yeah. yeah, but who knows? I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I look at it as like this is the first time you know, like if you go back to the 1800s and you had joint stock corporations, is this sort of thing that gets a, a common pattern and. And then in, in some ways, like banking and capital markets laddered off of that in mm-hmm. some ways. And so, but now like we have this creative surface of you have an entity and you have participants and you can have contractual uh, interactions and economic coordination and all those things can start to happen. And it's like a space, it's a space for radical experimentation, right? And uh, like, I'm, I'm interested in, in just sort of seeing Ideally, like a, a lot of different ways, people try and organize these things, and and hopefully, like there's like a legal binding, like so there's enough that like they can pay taxes or or whatever, or can connect to labor laws if there are labor laws that they need to connect to. But so there's that hybrid kind of thing, kind of like a stablecoin. It's like this real world thing that's connected to yeah. an on chain thing. And but I, I see, I sort of Im- imagine a lot of experimentation and. I think um, corporate forms, like yes, there's been a lot of, of work on corporate forms, but kind of these new global internet native corporate forms, like it's it's really a new thing. Um, and distributed work and everything else kind of plays into that. So I, I'm likewise super bullish about it and just you know, just curious to hear how you were thinking about it too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm curious. Um, I mean, there's certain jurisdictions I think have tried to lean into this, like yeah. like Wyoming did yeah. something, which I think it's really smart. It could, you know, like most C corps in the U.S. are in, in Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. So, like, I, I feel like Wyoming made this like really smart move. And I, I talked to some um, some of the leaders in in, uh, in Wyoming, and I was like, "How did by the way, how did that come about?" And they were like, "Honestly, it was this one guy, and he had this crazy idea, and we all didn't really quite understand it. But we were like, sure, try it out.'" <laughs> and I was like, "Sometimes it's the funniest thing ways that these things happen." But yeah. I don't know. Do you have any? I, I'm still trying to think about. Like, I'm curious your thoughts. How will you know, DAOs are supposed to handle the, the court system or whatever is supposed yeah. to be handled on chain, and it's, yeah. we've seen some of them that have resolved that successfully with votes. Yeah. Um, but what do, I'm still trying to think about what is the tie-in back to the real world. Like, yeah. if, if you need to go to some Wyoming court or something, yeah. what, what's the situation? I don't know. How do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I mean, like, at, I, I think, like, the, you know, c- clearly um, a couple things. I mean, these entities need to be able to contract with um, enti- other legal entities, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really key thing because that's not, it's not going to be viable that they are. It's so self-contained that mm. all products and services are entirely in that on-chain world. And so, I feel like there is that kind of um, root kind of kind of you know connectivity mm. that that has to be there. And so, you know, LLCs um, or, or or other kind of corporate structures can exist and and or can kind of be bound like this. I mean, Wyoming Dow is kind of like that. But I think other governments are sort of saying, hey, you can have an on-chain entity that that does these things. I, I mean, I think th- the contracts that they enter into that are off-chain contracts, then you have dispute resolution through uh, yeah. through that. And then I think there's you know interesting work that can be done in terms of on-chain dispute resolution. You know, there's like Claros, I don't know if you've looked at that, which is um, kind of a, a decentralized arbitration system mm. that exists entirely on chain, and I mean it's it's fairly early in in its development. There was the Aragon Court, right, which attempted to do you know something like this yeah. as well. So I feel like um, those kinds of experiments could continue, and you could actually see like durable kind of arbitration mechanisms to to deal with you know what are kind of provable on chain activities and contracts yeah. and things like that. 
That's cool. Yeah, it makes sense. You kind of need that, maybe in, in the, at least in the intermediate stage, you need that connectivity back into the the legacy, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. system um, of paper and records and whatever yeah. to sort of interface with non-DAO entities. Yeah. But you're right, more and more of it could go on-chain with these kind of arbitration courts yeah. and stuff. That'd be, that'd be super cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting one. Um, um, maybe we want to pivot to talk about um, uh, kind of lending um, and and in particular um, this sort of concept of um, uh, maybe maybe stepping back like I have this theory and, and relates to stablecoins actually which is the total addressable market for you know stablecoins um, you know kind of full reserve type stablecoins that we're looking at I think of it as just M2 electronic money mm-hmm. so that's like a hundred trillion dollars so it's a big market um, but when you actually break that down like the vast majority of that M2 money is actually, um, kind of leveraged capital, meaning it's deposits that then are kind of, there's a money multiplier and that's the fractional reserve system that is basically kind of playing out loans on the deposit base. And, and you know, if you really want to compete with M2 money, you have to like create credit intermediation. And, and so credit intermediation, um, you know, today there's like ways that that happens and, and, you know, we have credit intermediation on chain, but it's mostly like leveraged capital, meaning it's margin borrowing and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And so I think the really interesting problem becomes when when can on-chain methods provide unsecured forms of credit intermediation or, or different levels of security? And there's, again, there's like DeFi projects that are experimenting with this today mm-hmm. that are interesting. Um, but it kind of gets to this, you know, ties into DAOs and like if there's an organization that actually has its treasury on chain, well then you can actually see, you know, a lot about its financial health and then you could underwrite it, right? Um, and so, you know, oracleized data is another way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just, I'm curious as you think about the future of lending on blockchains, you know, what do you think in terms of that kind of, the, the role that blockchains play in, in broader credit facilitation? Hmm. Well, you know, I hadn't thought about it in terms of um, the M2 money supply and how that can expand. And there may be all, I, I bet you've thought about that actually a lot more than I have. So I'd be, I'd be curious <laughs> to get your thoughts. You know, the, the main thing I've just been thinking about in terms of credit, in terms of what these on-chain protocols can unlock and, and lending is that today, um, a lot of these lending marketplaces are just so constrained into one country or to one type of person. Totally. And you know, look, in, inside each of these, I'm sure there's like, there were reasonable reasons why these things were created, but the net effect of it is that um, just there's not equal access to credit globally at all, right? I remember I, I spent a year living in Argentina and I was kind of surprised to learn there that people can't get mortgages for their house. Yeah. It just the, the, the credit market is just not developed there. And so the net effect of it is that wealthy people who can pay cash for a house, like they own ho- they own property and then most, like 99% of people don't own property. They can only rent their whole life, right? And so it's basically keeping them more in poverty. All the, you know, pe- yeah. real estate is a big way that people build their wealth. It's the same thing, um, you know, if you wanted to build a global lending marketplace, yeah. you'd have to go not only to all, you know, all states in the US, but all these 200 countries around the world. It, it's sort of silly. I mean, why, why can't um, I make a loan to someone in India or, Vice, totally. or in Brazil or whatever? It's, totally. it's very silly to me. So I think that just in terms of human potential and like economic growth and everything, yeah. a global credit marketplace would completely unlock that. And yeah. that's part of what DeFi is trying to do. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, 100% agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, 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 uh, I often use the concept of, of long-tail capital markets. Mm-hmm. And like the, the internet's really good at, at long-tail markets, right? Long-tail advertising mm-hmm. with you know, Google AdWords and long-tail you know, transportation coordination with Uber and kind of long-tail content, long-tail e-commerce, right? Like anyone who has a product that they make in any part of the world can find a buyer and there's a logistics platform and it's sort of the, the specialization and so on. And, but we don't have long-tail capital markets. Like that, like we have the Russell 2000, uh, which is like not quite like a long, I mean, that's on yeah. the equity side, right? But um, c- clearly that's like the, the promise. And I think one of the challenges with DeFi today is, at least in its, in, its current incarnation, is so much of that, that, that credit market that's there is, is sort of, it's really still tied to, you know, people who want to borrow long, uh, or short, or go short, or borrow long on on a on an investment, um, which is an important form of like funding and everything else. Mm-hmm. But when we kind of get to the use cases that you're talking about, like where there's you know people with property or people who have needs, and um, ultimately kind of getting to a place where um, you know there's long tail underwriting um, in a sense, right? Yeah. Where where you can kind of have that be surfaced to on chain systems that can provide the right kind of decisioning. Yeah. I mean, yeah, one thing I've thought about a little bit is just, you know, now that decentralized identity is becoming bigger with ENS and these other protocols, um, there should be probably some kind of FICO score equivalent yeah. for an ENS, right? And especially if you can look at attestations on that account, the history of that account, what maybe it's received um, payroll from, yeah. a, from a DAO or, you, uh, you know, you and I have sent and you have a reputation. It's basically like a Google PageRank type algorithm on, yeah. the, on the graph structure of the transactions. Yes. And, um, I'm actually, I haven't looked into this too deeply, but I'm a little surprised we haven't seen like a, a reputation score, FICO score, decentralized protocol emerge. Mm-hmm. That's probably something that needs to get built. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely um, projects that are experimenting with that. And, and um, I think, um, yeah, the, the, again, this kind of, this, I have this idea of these kind of hybrids that, you know, there's sort of a pure on-chain version of things. And then there's the kind of, off-chain thing that you need to link to, and, mm-hmm. and identity is one of those, right? Because we, we, we need, like, proof that I am who I say I am. And, like, you guys do that for a living, right, with, with, with people. And, and, like, these kind of root uh, elements that are kind of, there's a trusted intermediary or, or a, you know, a statutory obligation, at least, or whatever it is, that, that society has sort of said, yeah, I'm going to trust the government to issue an ID, or I'm going to trust... A, a financial institution as an intermediary to verify these IDs and, and sort of the credentialing can kind of, those root credentials can kind of come. But then when you attach that to, you know, things like on-chain, then you can decorate it with a lot of other kind of uh, data that then makes like richer forms of decisioning really possible. But mm-hmm. um I'd, I'd be interested. I know you guys have recently done uh, uh, Coinbase ID and built on ENS, and and sort of you're starting to progress into that. And kind of what do you envision um, over the next couple of years becoming possible at scale? Yeah, well, I'm very excited about ENS and and decentralized identity generally, and not just that standard. There's yeah. there's a variety of them, but uh, what, so we wanted to make it easy first of all for people to kind of get one for free, right? <laughs> so yeah. they didn't have to go and buy it. So, you know, if you, we basically made, um, you know, like jeremy.cb.id or anybody basically could claim a username.cb.id. And it, because it has kind of um, 
I don't know what you'd call it, like a prefix on it. Yeah. Um, you know, we were able to kind of get the cb.id root name or whatever. Yeah. So we wanted to make that easy for anybody to claim. But of course, people want to have customized names too. Um, and we want to make it possible for them to buy those easily. And right now, I think they can just transfer it in if they want. But yeah. um, so there's a, should be a marketplace for those and people should auction them off. Um, and I think there's going to be a variety of, you know, um, decentralized identity standards too, and yeah. um, maybe more we can work on there over time. But For sure. yeah, um, I think look, that's a very fun foundational piece because today it's for so many reasons. Today we're sending money to a random string of yeah. characters. It's like an IP back to the UX issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it human readable or machine readable? It's these are all machine readable, right. just like IP addresses. But then we got domain names, right? Yeah. And we got email addresses. So. That feels like a foundational thing. I, I should be sending it always to a human-readable name. It yeah. should have a, like a reputation score, right. a decentralized thing attached to it. I should probably be able to go to look at that profile page yeah. for that that name. Maybe even see um, you know uh, things that the person wants to be public. Right? Ideally, you wouldn't, wouldn't want to have everything public right, right now. That's another issue that some private, some public. But you you should be able to go there and see you know maybe post decentralized ident- um, social media posts you've made right. or. Um, you know, NFTs that you own, attestations, like credentials, d- uh, degrees that you've gotten, Absolutely, right? Yeah. Endorsements, whatever. Yeah, so yeah. Um, even POAPs, right? Like the proof of attendance yeah. where we could both, you know, Jeremy went to the Singapore yeah. FinTech Festival, whatever. Yeah. It feels like this is like, like one of those space. It's like, you know, the, the internet wanted a standard for money and the internet wanted a standard for identity and like, I think crypto infrastructure is finally giving us the ability to create those, um, yeah. um, and uh, uh, and and I think it, it it just it also feels to me like one of these spaces where um, you know standards are so, are going to be super important, right? Um, because you, you know identity, unless it's like really broadly interoperable, and everybody sort of says yes, I'm, and this is like a chicken and egg problem, right? <laughs> it's like you know. Every, how many people have had ideas for digital identity that are just like they're stovepipes, right? They're they're sort of sort of stuck. But feels like we have a shot now in a way that hasn't existed ever before, at least on the internet, to kind of to potentially solve this. Yeah. Well, to me, the key unlock is that you know I don't want to have a digital identity managed by one company. <laughs> right. I want to have a, de- a an identity that's it's operates in some you know decentralized manner that. I control it, but I, I know that no one person could shut me off. You know, yeah. there's all these issues with right. like censorship and everything. So, yeah. um, needs to be self-sovereign. Yeah, uh, even if the some of the uh, credentials that you bring to it are are, are, are given from someone else. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, we the, the state of the art of identity verification today for Coinbase and all these different countries and most com- most companies is literally taking photos of pieces of paper the government gave you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And. It's so crazy. I mean, places like India have done a really good job with like India Stack and UPI, and actually turn a lot of these into APIs with biometrics. Yeah. Somehow that happened in India, which is like incredible, an incredible achievement. But you know, every other country in the world basically is nowhere near that. And so, I think crypto can help just advance this whole state forward. And okay, we'll have some connections to the legacy exactly. stuff, but I think yeah. eventually, your your DID will be more important, not because you linked some government piece of paper to it, but yeah. because it's been participating in all these transactions and it has an online yeah. reputation. And that's almost more important. And we actually, I think it's probably better for the world if, if you know, every human could have multiple of these. Like, you know, you might have uh, multiple different accounts on different services and it doesn't, the, the government wants you to have one ID per person, but I think 
in a, and there's, there's a world that's probably better for humanity where you have, you know, you're one for public stuff and you totally. have, you're one for, you know, if you're an activist or dissident or whatever, like you yeah. need to have different profiles. So yeah. And the, the kind of productivity experience, I, productivity is maybe the wrong word, but like the, the UX around how to do that, like clearly hasn't been solved yet, but, yeah. but clearly will be right. Um, yeah, it's cool. Um, it's it, identity is like you know there's sort of these like multi-sided coins, uh, no pun intended, but like uh, identity and privacy are kind of uh, have an interplay with each other, yeah. and then identity, privacy, and regulation all have like a play against yeah. each other, and um, you know we see you know kind of you know guidelines that come through around things like self custody wallets, and you know what level of identification is necessary for people to make transfers to those, and you know, what's the perimeter of, of, uh, uh, of kind of privacy preserved, uh, you know, transactions and, you know, so policy, identity, privacy are like, you know, three sides of the same coin. I don't know if that works, but, yeah. uh, but, but like there's this interplay there. And I know you've been really passionate about, um, these topics. I know we've, we've both like when the, you know, Mnuchin tried to do what he did, it was like, you know, kind of, we, we, we were all like ready to sue the government, but, um, like, unpack that a little bit, like th- th- that interplay on those issues and, and coming back to your core mission of economic freedom. And, you know, a, a lot of times, like, there's sort of a looking back, like, this is how it works. But now there's a looking forward, like there's new possibilities. What are those new possibilities, in particular around identity, privacy, and economic freedom? And, and kind of then, how do we convince policymakers uh, to, to kind of uh, kind of enable that world? That's yeah. a big question. Yeah, very big question. <laughs> so let's see. I mean, I looked, I think there's this fundamental tension, right? Is like nobody wants to see a technology used by bad people to do bad things. But you also don't want to, you know, I, my earth mental model is like 1% of the people in the world are doing bad things and 99% of people are basically good people trying to do yeah. the right thing. And so you don't want to harm the 99% even a little bit just to get a leg up on the 1%, right? Yeah. And you know, there's some pretty, um, I think it was, uh, was it the IMF or the World Bank? Someone like that put out a report on um, AML efforts globally. Mm-hmm. And it was not great. I mean, it was basically, there's an enormous cost to yeah. society. And, yeah, and 99% um, goes undetected. Or yeah, something. yeah, it was something, I think like, it was like 1% or 2% of, of illicit funds were actually frozen due to right. all AML right. efforts globally. Right. Um, and at enormous cost, not just to innovation, but literally. To society. Yeah, to, I mean, to, to real economies, to people. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you and I, uh, we have large portions of our employee bases are working on these things. So I think that's something really serious that people need to look at. Um, Look, I think a lot of the work, the literal literal practical thing to do is, it's like, and you've done a great job of this, is basically show up and talk to policymakers. They're not, it's not like, you know, on Twitter, the debate can lose all nuance, but I, in my experience, 95% of them are well-intentioned, smart people who want to do the right thing for society. And, you know, their mind is split across a hundred different things. This is just one thing they're trying to grapple with. And so it takes people showing up and just talking through the issues, explaining it. I do think um, 95% of the time, our default stance is to work with government on good good solutions. But 5% of the time, if we see something bad coming down that's being proposed, that's misguided, or we think is 
a line that would be terrible for the industry, then yeah. we are going to stand up and, you know, we're not afraid to fund lawsuits. And, it, that, you know, this is, um, it's not like a hostile thing or whatever, you know. Yeah. It, this, no, the, the, court, st- the stakes are high for society and, and the economy and, like, what the future world is. And, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. have high conviction about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's what the courts are there to help us resolve. So, anyway, I think, you know, just to take Singapore as one example, right, I think they've been very welcoming, um, they're actually some of the most sophisticated financial regulators in the world, I think. Totally. And, you know, both Circle and Coinbase have gotten these kind of, um, in principle, approvals for hopefully a path to a license, which is which is great. Um, I think they've done a really good job kind of welcoming institutional business here. Um, yeah. Stablecoin regulations seem to be making Emerging, progress. Yeah. You may tell me if you feel otherwise. And then, but they haven't been as forthcoming, I think, on a couple areas. One is around self-custodial wallets mm-hmm. and then um, the retail market for trading. They seem to be hesitating on, uh, we don't think retail should be trading this stuff. And you know, that that's an area where I do think um, Singapore risks uh, not having the right stance right now. I mean, we're seeing like Hong Kong, for instance, right. coming out and saying, actually, up. we're gonna do retail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah retail yeah, trading, yeah. like yeah. retail users need access to this, uh, to these crypto assets, not just for trading, although that's one piece of it, it's to start to access all of Web3 and to be able to totally. earn money and do this remittance. Like and the internet. It's sort of yeah. like saying you can't use the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, so right. I think any kind of approach, like if Singapore takes this approach of like, all right, we're going to allow these pieces, but not these pieces, that's not going to work, I don't think, in, in crypto. And it's not going to allow Singapore to be the financial hub it deserves to be as this leader yeah. in economic freedom. Um, yeah, so, and I think on self-custodial wallets, like just to touch on that one, for yeah. instance, um, look, my, my personal view is if you're not storing customer money, you're not a financial service business and you shouldn't be regulated like one. Um, obviously, both of our companies, we do store customer funds. We yeah. are regulated like financial service businesses. But, you know, it's a, I think that's a really dangerous place to get to if, you, if you're going to say, all right, anybody just making, hosting a website or building, you know, the browser equivalent or whatever now needs to get it tied up in financial services regulation. I think that's going to kill a lot of the innovation. And, and the, thing, the, the thing that some regulators, I think, don't realize is that it's not like the citizens in your country aren't going to use it. They're still going to do it. They're just going to go, you know, use overseas, like, unregulated options. So you're not protecting them by saying, um, we're disallowing it. You're just pushing it offshore. So anyway, that's a tough one to grapple with. Yeah, it is. And I think it gets even tougher when... You know, I, I was actually I was I was sitting down with a, a senior government official recently, and um, you know, the 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 view of this technology is is actually really colored by the presumption that like a blockchain's only purpose is to like transfer money, and it's like no 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 no. I had to like step back and say like these are basically like general purpose internet operating systems and they're solving a set of problems with with data and transactions and software that the internet hasn't solved before and it's like a whole new environment for a new class of problems that can be solved that are really important some of which are like very very consumer some of which are are very useful to the healthcare industry or whatever it is and like you have to really step back and realize that this isn't all just about you know um, you know, kind of regulating f- the storage and movement of funds, right? Yeah. And so if you if you inadvertently sort of put policies in place that kind of cap what you're able to do with this, like these internet operating systems, like that's a real problem. And, and it was a little bit of a light bulb moment, you yeah. know, like, oh God, like this is way, way, way bigger than I realized. And like, I, I liken it to, um, you know, during the, the, some of the growth phases of, of the of the prior phases of the internet where 
you know, everyone kind of got comfortable with the idea that there's an open internet and there's these open networks. And, you know, if you have a piece of software and a computer that's connected to it, you can kind of do whatever that software allows you to do. And, uh, and people would build services that would, you know, enable free publishing and, and, you know, and people would build services to do peer-to-peer communications like messaging apps and communications apps and all these things kind of grew up. And one instinct was like, well, that's a telecommunication service. We should like, it should have all the same things that happen mm-hmm. with the telephone system. Yeah. Or, you know, that's, oh, that's actually a, 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 a radio broadcast that you're doing. Well, you should have all the same licenses that you do to like stand, put up a radio tower or whatever. Right. And, and so the, the initial mapping of like regulatory frameworks to open internet, it just, you know, it actually... It happened, but then it kind of like faded away because what happened is society was like, no, this is way better. Like we really like this, mm-hmm. and we're and and then policymakers ultimately responded and were like, okay, we can live with the fact that people can have encrypted communications. Now there are parts of law enforcement that don't like that and fight that, but like broadly, society's like, yeah, we this is a value, right? We we're, we want to preserve that, or they you know kind of. Um, you know, we're like, okay, there's there's YouTube and like terrorists can put recruiting videos on YouTube. And yeah, there's a process to like find them and take them down, but like we're not going to ban YouTube um, because like people want freedom of publishing information. And, yeah. and, and so... Imagine if you had to get a license before I'm, you could put I'm, a video up or right. something. Right, I mean, well, that's From like... From who, what agency? Yeah, right? I mean, that was like, yeah. I, I joke that I remember because in the mid-90s I was working on some of this stuff and it was like... The big proposal was like to build a website. You'd need an FCC license, and it was like, okay, hold on. <laughs> you know, it's like, and there were, that was like a legitimate discussion in Congress. Yeah, um, and I feel like we're kind of in a similar place with this world of the uh, the Internet of Value, right? And totally. and and in some ways, like if we keep building this and we keep making the kind of progress that's being made, then like firms and households will say, no, I don't want you to. Like, I, this is better. Like, don't, you can't take this away from me. Right. And, and that's at the end of the day, like, policy is the will of the people, right? Yeah. And so we, we, we got we to gotta make a lot of progress. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. I, you know, society went through that big shift with, like, encryption was a scary word. Oh, my yeah. gosh, if you're using encryption, you're a terrorist, whatever. And then right. now, you know, with WhatsApp and Signal and, uh, like, yeah. this thing is running the whole world. Or the, the iPhone yeah. itself, like, you know, uh, this is my private yeah. device, right? Yeah. So encryption is not a bad word. It's, it's like more of like a fundamental right to privacy yeah. that we want yeah. everyone to have. So I agree. It seems like the same story playing out again. And um, it, it is, you know, you always have to watch out for someone's like fear-based instinct yes. to sort of yeah. like restrict something. And then you miss, you harm like the 99% as yeah. much as the 1% of bad people. So, yeah. yeah. Maybe last, last question, because we could go on forever and ever. Um, but um, it's actually related, which is, um, you know, Public chains and and things like stable coins and Bitcoin itself, right, are are kind of expressions of, you know, money that exists at internet scale and has that are inherently global, and but monetary systems are so rooted in in kind of territories mm-hmm. and in and and in sort of fiscal policy and taxation and other things like in these territories, but. Um, you know, Esther Dyson, one of the early thinkers in the internet, coined the phrase like "information wants to be free," which was sort of behind the kind of open source movement and 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 all of this. But like, 
does does like economic value exchange want to be free in the sense of like you know inherently it's like that the world will tend towards that, but it really does challenge monetary sovereignty, and you're now starting to like like see like major governments you know you, you get really concerned about that like mm-hmm. like wait a minute like in they could see a world in a few years where it's like what just happened, and there is this kind of monetary sovereignty discussion and. Um, how do you think some of that plays out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, okay, look, I think the most important, like, kind of near-term and medium-term thing is, you know, every every major government pretty much is going to want to have a central bank digital currency, or I think, you know, in the U.S.'s case, it's going to end up using USDC as sort of like a de facto right. um, CDBC. You know, they'll, they'll basically set up Regulated fiat digital currency, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so... That's great. Like there should be clear regulatory frameworks, audits, and all that stuff. And then, boom! Now there's we have a a, a way to have a wrapper around fiat money, and they they still control the money supply and all right. that. So it's like it's fun. First of all, it's just yeah. work with the current system. Totally. But I agree with you. I think as the crypto economy continues to grow, and you know today it's so it's a small percentage of global GDP, but it's it's similar. To, again, look at e-commerce, right? E-commerce 1999 was like nothing. And now it's like 15 or almost 20% of global GDP, I think. And during COVID, it grew a lot. And so what happens if, you know, in another 10 years we go by and it's like the crypto economy is 20% of global GDP? Okay, well, it wouldn't be very inclusive to use, um, you know, the currency of one sovereign nation inside the global system. And so I do think there could end up being a world where there is a more um, transnational currency that's that's being used. And... um, Honestly, that would probably be more fair in the sense that there's not like yeah. some small number of people with their fingers on the dials who could change it too much. Right. Now, what exactly that'll look like, I mean, look, I think Bitcoin is an incredible gold standard. You know, some economists would argue that for, and I think it's really important to have a gold standard. It, uh, some economists would argue that you actually want to have like a slight inflation rate to get something to be encouraged people to spend it. Um, some, you know, the super stability. Yeah. yeah. So you, I don't know, you, I mean, you could imagine a, um, a version of a coin out there that was, trying to more tied to like CPI or just a flat 2% inflation rate or something like that, that I think the crypto economy basically could come up with a better form of um, like a transactional mm-hmm. um, currency that that's superseded, or it might just be a basket of fiat currencies yeah. or things like that. So yeah. um, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but I do think that um, it would be a very good thing for the world. It's, I don't know. What, what do you think? I totally agree. I mean, I think it's a legit problem space. And, and I think like the forces of this Technology and and this system growing are going to lead to uh, the, the I sort of think of it as like synthetic forms of global digital currency that that um, could actually have um, you know a, a, a meaningful peg against something like a Bitcoin as well or have a, a, a ratio that's there that's then kind of so you have a sound money you know kind of basis but you also have something that um, you know is a more kind of stable unit of account and that maybe has tie-ins to the biggest fiat currencies. And so definitely a space to experiment. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it may end up being a little bit of like an unbundling of the yeah. services that, are, that you really want from a government. And, you know, we talked about the court system and DAOs, and we talked about the monetary system. And yeah. and then, you know, I think this is where you eventually get to network states, which is, right. about, you know, totally. you, I know you, you met with Balaji here as well. But, yeah, yeah th- that's, I mean, that, as usual, Balaji is <laughs> 10 years to 100 years. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's ahead of all of us. But um, I think that's a pretty plausible theory about when yeah. how, where things will go. But, you know, that could take 20, 50 years. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, thank you. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Thank you for everything you're doing on the policy front, especially, and just thank you. driving forward USDC. Awesome. Appreciate it.